Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Honey and Co. Once a month, we invite someone we admire for a chat in front of a small audience in our daily Honey and Spice. Every speaker gives us the opportunity to cook food inspired by their cuisine for the audience to try. We sit back with a glass of wine and hear about a life made in food. Something's going wrong. Hi, I'm Itamar. And I'm his better half, Sarit. This week we're joined by the amazing Dr. Annie Gray. Who is a food historian. There aren't uh, a lot of them about. I think there's only four or five in the UK. And uh, she's going to tell us how she became a food historian and what it means to be a food historian. And she's going to tell us about the book she just wrote, The Greedy Queen, which is all about the appetites of Queen Victoria. There seemed to be quite a lot of appetite for Queen Victoria. Yeah, she liked her puddings. She liked her sandwiches, did Victoria. <laughs> Thank you all for coming to talk about the Greedy Queen. But first of all, uh, Annie, I wanted to talk about you and your career because it is so distinctive that I feel quite intrigued to understand a little bit more about how, how did you become a food historian? I think the short answer is I loved history and I loved food. Um, so the two came together, but it, it's, it was quite kind of fortuitous in some ways. I look back and it really seems totally logical. Of course, all the steps were there. I could never have done anything else. Uh, I did history as an undergraduate at Oxford, and I'd love to say it's probably changed, and I always say I'm sure it's not like this anymore, but I suspect it might still be like this. Uh, it was very much great white men striding across the world, hitting natives on the head. And it was taught by people who I suspected probably were the same people as well. So I hated it, absolutely hated it. I thought, I love history, but this is not what I want to learn about. That is, This is not something that I care about. So I left at the end of my three years, and I went and got a job in marketing. And it turned out I was unemployable. And I got made redundant twice. And then I walked out of a job before they sacked me. And then I fetched up going, I don't really know what I want to do, but I love history still. 
So I went to do a master's in historical archaeology, which is the archaeology of the modern world. So it's post-1600. And I absolutely loved it. I adored the course. It was tangible. It was buildings. It was plates. It was bones. It was the spaces that people lived in and walked through. And as part of that, we studied food. And I thought, this, this is what I want to do. I loved cooking. I'd spent three years living in France as a teenager and had this sort of cooking epiphany. And I was looking quite deliberately for something that would have the maximum amount of accessibility for people possible. I knew I wanted to work with museums. I knew I wanted to work with heritage sites. So I was looking for a topic which would appeal to everyone. And everybody eats. Even anorexic teenagers who come along to historic sites and they go, I'm not interested in food. They just still have an opinion. And almost everyone, if you put something in front of them which is different or shocking or interesting, they'll ask questions about it. So the two kind of came together... And then I decided to do a PhD, because to work in that world, you need a PhD. So I spent three years immersed in the dining change that happened in the 19th century, from banqueting style to sequential dining style, from a class and gender perspective. Yeah, that's a thesis. Uh, On the way to that, in between the master's and the PhD, by the way, I got sacked, finally, properly got sacked from a job. So uh, that really decided me that I needed to be self-employed. So it sort of all came together. My father was a food chemist as well, so I suppose I had that in my background, that I was interested in what makes food and where it comes together. But it all looks like lots of different threads. But then when you tie them together, it's totally logical that I'm doing exactly what I do now. Um, And it's absolutely brilliant. And so what is your typical working... Well, there won't be a typical working day, and I'm sure there isn't even a typical working month. But tell us a little bit about... You've worked at Audley End. and So what was your first actual job as a food historian? I used to work at Hampton Court. Have any of you been to Hampton Court and seen the costumed people? Or the Tower of London? Yeah, so I was usually uh, the wife of William Parr, Catherine Parr's (laughs) brother, uh, in 1543. Spent a lot of time in 1543. Um, she was a recusant, she was a Catholic, uh, she hated her husband, I would play her for the gender aspect, so I would flirt outrageously with any man I could meet, and then turn on a sixpence and start telling them they were absolutely evil, and I'd been dumped by my husband, and it wasn't my fault, and he'd taken all of my land, and you know, it was quite fun. And the company that supplied the guides for their setup or were offered, offered the contract at Audley End House in Essex, which is a fairly standard, large country house. And they've got a Victorian kitchen. And in a remarkably innovative move for English Heritage, they decided to set up a full-time, at that point, paid staff of costumed interpreters. So the difference between reenactment and interpretation is that reenactors do it as a hobby. They're usually men. They like to shoot guns. Uh, they hate the public. And if you ask them if you can take a photograph of them, by and large, and I am generalising, by and large they'll go... What is that gremlin, that box you hold? You cannot take, what did you say? Photograph. Privy forsooth. And you think, oh, God, bugger off. Uh, interpretation, on the other hand, is paid. And if you ask someone if you can take a photograph, they go, of course you may, madam. Would you like to come and stand next to me? And then you pose. And you are paid to interpret that site and to communicate a, site, a set of site-specific aims. So the team at Audley End, we were in costume. We played real characters, all taken from the census of 1881. And what started off as bringing alive the service wing, because I was in charge of it, rapidly metamorphosed into bringing alive the kitchen. Uh, And I pretty much learned to cook in front of a thousand people a day walking through the kitchens while I was blagging it, being a kitchen maid. Uh, I cooked before then in a kind of, you know, enthusiastic at-home way, but making my own puff pastry for the first time while people critique my style when I've never (laughs) done it before. Uh, But I'm trying to... Of course, I've done this thousands of times before. You do this. You're a scullery maid, sir. What do you mean my technique's all wrong? I'll have you know this is a Victorian technique, thinking I really (laughs) hope I translated the French correctly. 
Um, so that was really, really good fun. And I stopped that after about five or six years, having, but I still train people doing costume. Um, and I mean, now it can be anything. This week, for example, yesterday, I'm writing a cookbook at the moment. So yesterday I made cake, possibly. I made volivants um, and various other steak and kidney pudding uh, and wrote them all down diligently. I'm not a cook who writes things down. So that's quite traumatising, quite frankly. Uh, today I'm doing this. I've just been to the British Library. I had a meeting with the BBC earlier about potentially doing other programmes for them. Tomorrow I'm filming in Hampton Court about orangeries then driving to York then I'm filming in York with Mansion House which I'm also connected to because I've been advising them on their 18th century kitchen which is about to be reopened and plotting their opening event where I'll be in costume in the kitchens and then I'm going back again to write some scripts for some people in Pontefract who are doing a history of Pontefract through five periods of food so kind of everything bits and pieces at home and then I get bored and I go off and do something else so it can be literally kind of wherever in the country. Well, that sounds like a really jam-packed schedule. But one of the really crucial things is about bringing the past to life through food. And we talked a little bit earlier about people going around National Trust homes and English heritage houses and always loving the kitchens. Kind of, it's more interesting than some of the furniture upstairs. It's, but really, there's not, you're not allowed to touch things, are you? And so that whole issue about bringing food to life doesn't really happen quite enough. And so I suppose that what we see is the interpretation of those kitchens on TV. And one of your jobs is to give advice on that being accurate. Um, I haven't, well, no, I, sadly, or possibly fortunately for the TV series is involved, I've not yet been asked to advise on a historical drama. I'd like to, because <laughs> the food is almost always inaccurate. Um, what I tend to do more often is work with the sites themselves. Who's, who's a, a sort of country house visitor? The sort of National Trust style things. Yes. Um, you know how you walk into the kitchen and you go, wow, this is lovely. There's a big table in the middle and this big dresser with loads of copper on it. And you think, this is great. I've got no idea when any of this went in. It's probably Victorian. Where's the cafe? And off you go. And I think the problem with a lot of the time is that we, we now know we want to open the kitchens and the Trust and English Heritage clocked that kitchens were interesting to people about 10 to 15 years ago, moved the cafes out of the kitchen into the stable block and started redoing their kitchens. And about 10 or 15 years ago, if you'd gone to a kitchen like that, it would have been really amazing, really innovative. Just to have the downstairs areas open was really quite something. But now they've all done it. And actually, there is so much potential in food to tell stories about anything. It's not about the food. I don't study food history because I think it's the be-all and end-all or because it's really interesting to know when curry was first eaten, for example. I mean, it is. It's a cool thing. But actually, what does that tell us about society at the time? How does it tell us about global foodways? What does it tell us about finance? What does it tell us about global influences? You know, those things. What does it tell us about people? That's always, surely, the key thing in history. And ultimately, of course history is totally irrelevant unless you make it about the past. I mean, no one cares when Louis XIV died. Honestly, it's totally irrelevant. But if you can make those facts relevant to our lives every day, which usually means helping us to situate ourselves in time and place and kind of work on our own identities, that's where it's really important. So I don't want to see a kitchen where you walk in and see loads of copper and you're not allowed to touch it. I want to see something that's alive and has sound and smell and taste, possibly, although there are health and safety problems with that. Something where you walk in and you think, wow, this is actually a cacophony. I don't think I could cope with working here. And then that tells you something about working lives in the past. One of the questions I get a lot when I'm working in kitchens and country houses, or rather one of the things I get told a lot, is people come in and go, wow, this is lovely. 
I'd be down here. And I like to go, no, you wouldn't. And they go, no, 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 I'm not that posh. And I go, no, but you have to be really good to work down here, so the chances that you'd be down here is really low. And it throws people. And I like shop tactics. But it's true. 75% of servants in the Victorian era worked in houses of only one or two servants. Most people were maids of all works or slavvies, and they were doing doing everything in one house for the mistress of the house. And then the mistress would usually be helping with cooking as well. These are people who are literally doing everything from cleaning the toilets to blacking the shoes to preparing basic dishes to making the beds to you name it, they're doing it. And yet... Still in this country, our fixed idea about servant life is based on Downton Abbey. I mean, come on, move on, people. Mrs. Patmore's totally historically inaccurate. Sorry. Um, just the idea of a female cook in 1912. Honestly. Actually, I do remember setting the alarm off in the kitchen at the Red House near Halifax, which is where Charlotte Bronte used to stay because I leaned across to touch the sugar loaf on the kitchen table and this alarm went off and people appeared from nowhere because they thought I was stealing the silver, I think. People do steal. Audley End, where nothing is alarmed, we did once have somebody walk off with a laundry tub, which is this big, uh, and they nick the door handles. Well, I suppose if you're brazen enough, you can get away with it. And I will say this, I'm sure none of you in this room are like this, but by and large, the public are light-fingered as hell. (laughs) Sink plugs. I mean, who nicks a sink plug when it's just a wooden bung? And yet they'd be like, they were like confetti. They just disappeared out of the kitchen. And we'd chain them down in the end. And then people would undo the chains and take the plug away. And it's like, what? It's not even historic. It was made yesterday. (laughs) So a lot of your um, research for this book would have taken place in the Royal Archives and so you've spent a little bit of time at, where are the Royal Archives? Windsor, they're in the Round Tower. Anyone know Windsor Castle? When you go into Windsor, if you Google Windsor Castle, the Royal Archive is basically the picture that comes up. There's this enormous, very, very heavily Georgianised medieval tower in the middle of it and that's where the Royal Archive is. So when you get there, you climb up basically 150 steps to get to the archive because they don't admit there's a lift. Uh, and by the time you get there, you are dripping with sweat and you can barely breathe because you sort of always, or I find that you always take them really fast to start off with. So you always meet the archivist in a state of total disrepair. Um, you know, just when you thought you were going to look professional and totally the right kind of person to be studying royal documents, and you're there kind of like this. Um, but they are a beautiful place to study in. The wall's about five feet thick, and a lot of the studying that I did was last year when it was really hot. So you'd go in and you'd spend five or six hours in this just place where it was just so cool. It's lovely. And the sorts of things that you were looking for for the book, are, you've just written this complete romp through the Victorian age in food. And bearing in mind that Victoria was on the throne from 1837 to 1901. She, I mean, the age is named after her, obviously. Um, So she started off with the Georgian era and dining à la Francaise, which I'm going to ask you to explain in a moment, but we end with the Edwardian era being ushered in. And um, through all those years, she ate a lot. And you start the book with... Uh, reference to a pair of bloomers that were auctioned and I thought poor Queen Victoria having her bloomers auctioned but they did go for £12,900 it's a figure that's stuck in my head 
and they had a 48-inch waistline. You're not the only person who's reacted like that. We had those bloomers on a historic royal palace's uh, food and feasting course that I wrote the Victorian bit for, and the bloomers came up. And a number of people who were so offended that these bloomers were there, mainly Americans, who I suspect some of which at least had waist measurements that were not (laughs) too far. And I thought, but for goodness sake, she gave them to people after her death. And yes, they were given to people with the proviso that they shouldn't be sold during that person's lifetime. But if you're queen and you give your clothes to someone, there must somewhere in the back of your mind be lurking the idea that perhaps in the future, if they haven't been made into baby clothes for seven children, they might just possibly be a level of interest in them. So I did kind of think, you know what, she didn't care. And also beautiful linen, so presumably that's one of the things she thought, that people may make baby clothes with her monogrammed linen. Yeah, one of her dresses was buried in one of the dresses that Queen Victoria gave to the dresser. The dress then then retired to Switzerland and was buried in Queen Victoria's dress. And so you're going to read us a little bit about the research for the book. Say It's so fascinating, there's so much information. Um, I'm really interested in the process of you reading through all the grocery lists, the menus, the people who supplied all the food to the palaces, and about the palace kitchens themselves. The nature of researching anything like this is that the primary sources a lot of the time are very, very dry and dusty. I mean, there were some really cool bits, letters between Victoria and her daughters, things that, her own journals, she's got a very, very powerful voice. But a lot of it was shopping lists, basically, lists of supply, lists of dinners. And the first time you look, these, there are dining ledgers kept in the Royal Archives. And the first time you open one out, and they're enormous books. You stand there like this. You have to stand up to read them because they're you, just if you sit down there over your head. And they list out everything that was eaten in the establishment that day, sort of. So the Queen's menu is listed in full as a full-on written-in-French menu. So is the household luncheon, so the upper, <coughs> the ladies-in-waiting, gentlemen-in-waiting, that kind of thing. Queen's luncheon is usually listed, breakfast is sometimes listed. And then on the other page, you've got everything the servants ate. And they're all listed out by group. They don't say boiled mutton with caper sauce, they just say mutton. So there's a lack of detail with the servants. But you've got this incredible record, up to 1858, of everything eaten in the household. And I was really excited. I thought, brilliant, I can write the whole book based on this. And then you think, what can I do with it? What, what can I do so that this book is not just a list of food? which has got no explanation and no context, and, or a list of items purchased. You know, that's not actually intrinsically interesting. And I was in the archive very early on in writing this book, trying to kind of work out what I could do with these things. And I thought, OK, I'll have a look and I'll see whether Victoria's menus are noticeably different to those of William IV, her predecessor. Because if they are, presumably it means she really liked a particular... What I was hoping was that William IV ate endless hair and Queen Victoria ate loads of strawberries. And it was really obvious... And, of course, it wasn't really obvious. There was no change whatsoever. It was a complete dud. But as I was reading through William IV's final months, I suddenly realised that I could do something with these ledgers. And the whole book almost came together at that point. And I knew, and it's very rare when you're researching, that you read something and you think, right, this is definitely going to be chapter whatever. You usually think, this is cool. This is a nice nugget. I'll write this down. You don't kind of put it together, or at least I don't. Uh, until you're actually writing but this is one of those rare moments where I read it and I thought that is the end of chapter two and this is what it became Victoria turned 18 in May 1837 with celebratory banners across Kensington Palace and a state ball in her honour and the king got his wish though he was by now very ill As the hungry princess waited in the wings, daily reports of his progress came to her at Kensington. The royal dining ledger for June 1837 graphically illustrates William's decline through the food he was served. 
On the 4th of June, he was present at Their Majesty's Dinner, along with Queen Adelaide and the usual 30 or so guests. They ate hotchpotch, a type of meat soup and red mullet, braised ham and chicken pasties, veal tendron, mutton scallops, leverets, asparagus, plover's eggs and set creams, among many other things. Yet there were some telling dishes characteristic of invalid food, barley soup, souffle and orange jelly. On the 5th, he dined alone on beef tea, lamb ribs, venison, braised capon and roast fowl. His food became that prescribed for the very ill or just weaned, the same dishes Victoria had eaten at Ramsgate in November 1835 when she was ill and further back when she was a toddler, consisting of an endless diet of beef tea, chicken broth and chicken puree with the occasional potted beef. On the 16th of June, the Archbishop of Canterbury came to stay, listed at Her Majesty's Dinner, in preparation for King William's end and Queen Victoria's beginning. On the 17th, Victoria wrote in her journal that the news of the King is worse today, and on the 18th, the poor King, they say, can live but a few hours more. On the 19th, he ate beef tea, chicken broth and chicken puree. By the end of the day, he was dead. The dining ledger for the 20th of June did not give menus for their majesties, or even her majesty. Queen Adelaide was now a widow. The ledger simply listed, much reduced, menus for dinners at Windsor Castle. I read that ledger and I thought, I've watched a man die through his food. And at that moment I thought, these are not just documents. These can be brought alive and actually these can tell a real story about humans and about what they ate, but also about what they felt. And when you put together, or when I put together, those ledger entries with the newspaper reports at the time, with Queen Victoria's journals, you ended up with a really nuanced picture and a picture of a really, really tense time, of course, because when you know a monarch is dying, everyone's on the edge of their seat going, don't write the obituary yet, don't do it, don't do it. Victoria arrived on the throne when she was 18, but she had been brought up in a... With, with it, it wasn't always clear that she was going to be queen. And so the Kensington system probably seems to me to define how ultimately she ended up with quite a complicated relationship with food. Yeah, and I think it, it's very easy to project modern sensibilities back in the past. And today we would undoubtedly say that she had an eating disorder. Uh, the Kensington system, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, is basically intended to isolate Victoria. So her mother, who was a complete witch, um, her father had died when she was a few months old. Victoria's mother was horrible. Um, and Victoria's mother had an even more horrible evil advisor called John Conroy. Uh, Conroy, most historical figures end up being revised to show that they're quite good. Conroy hasn't been and can't be. He's just hideous. Um, and they knew that Victoria would probably become queen, although quite clearly there were lots of other people above her in the succession who could have children. It was all quite complicated. But as she grew older, it became more and more obvious she was going to become queen. So they decided to isolate her completely, make her totally reliant on them, and really to break her spirit. And it's all credit to Victoria that it didn't work. Um, she wasn't allowed any friends apart from John Conroy's daughter. She was fed on nursery food for much longer than most children were. And then they took her out to parade around the country to show her off like some sort of prize cow. And even at home, she would be paraded through the dining room till she'd shown off to guests and then put back in the nursery like this sort of poodle on a string. And she grew up with a very dysfunctional relationship with food that would, of course, continue when she was monarch because on the one hand, she's eating these incredible banquets where she's being feted and everybody is there in her honour. And on the other hand, she's back in the nursery eating mutton chops. So she's got a very, very schizophrenic relationship with food. And as she grows up, she gets told repeatedly she's gobbling, she's eating too fast, she's eating badly. And there's all this attention focused on her. And she gets very paranoid. And I suspect most of us, when we were 13, 14, 15, developed that thing where you're looking at other people going, are they thinner than me? And she does that in her journals. So-and-so's very thin, so-and-so's very pretty. I really want to lose some weight. And she does nothing about it. 
um, like most of us. So, uh, and then she's very, very ill in 1835, loses loads of weight, claims that she's grown much taller um, because she's paranoid about her height. She's five foot one. And when she becomes queen, she sort of erupts into this frenzy of eating because she just wants to party. She had this horrible life. She puts a mother at the other end of Buckingham Palace. She loves Buckingham Palace because it's so big. Mum's at one end, she's at the other end. She goes out every night, gets absolutely trolled, eats just vast amounts of food and throws herself into what she calls dissipation. And you just think, you go for it. You know, do it, yeah. I did anyway. <laughs> Might have been projecting slightly. <laughs> so you've got first course, second course, and then dessert. Dessert is completely separate and is treated as separate in most of the cookery books at the time. Your first course is soup, fish, what are called made dishes or entrees or fancy foreign muck if you're anti-French because they were nearly always French dishes. Um, and there was a big battle between English food and French food and, and all that kind of thing at the time. Um, and the idea is that you, all sit, you, you normally come into the dining room and that course is on the table and you eat the soups first. There's a choice of two, uh, light and dark. And it's uh, often said that ladies prefer the light soup because it suits their more genteel nature. Um, and then you go onto your fish and then you go onto your made dishes. And they can be things like anglicised versions of curries. They can be pies. They could be individual cutlets in a sauce. They're quite fancy. They're designed to show off the cook's skill. All of that being finished with, the table is cleared and the second course comes in. And again, it's laid on the table symmetrically. The dishes both complement each other and contrast with each other. So you might put a lobster on the table opposite a tongue because they're both red and curvy. Um, and that second course mixes roast meats, which is game, especially game birds, very prestigious, very difficult to serve, heads on, legs on, really, really a test of skill, stupidly inefficient to cook. They look great. Uh, vegetable dishes, and then what are called sweet entremets, which are things like custard tarts, jellies, blancmanges, um, <laughs> puddings, those kind of things. They're sweet and quite large. All of that is then disappears off, and then you have dessert. And dessert is a palate cleanser. So where today we think dessert is a sweet at the end of the meal, you've done all that in the second course. So dessert is ice cream, and it's fruit and nuts from the hot houses at Windsor. So the idea is you just end your meal 
with a, a bite of a nectarine or a small piece of ice cream and then the men and women separate so they can all go and have a wee um, and then come back together 15 minutes later once they've all relieved themselves. Uh, and that moves on to a thing called a la russe which is the sequential service that you get today if you go to a restaurant and you have a tasting menu. So the same dishes, but now no longer on the table, much more spread out. You're normally offered a choice of the two soups from the side. Then you're offered your fish. Then you're made dishes. Then you're roast. Victoria adds in a remove course. So she ends up with seven courses plus dessert for her a la roost meal. She could eat them in half an hour. <laughs> that was the extraordinary yeah. thing that she really did seem to gallop through a meal and you had to kind of keep up. Yeah, if you didn't keep up, you just didn't eat. Um, she wasn't unusual in that there were lots of other monarchs that were renowned for it but basically with Alla Roos everyone was served after the Queen so Queen's served first, you're given your dish she starts eating and then it's a race because she can really trough and if you've not finished, if you're having a conversation with your neighbour, forget it the dish is going to be whipped away so people did finish the meal starving uh, and to alleviate that there's a sideboard um, so that there's also cold fowl, pies, brawn, tongues, that kind of thing on the sideboard as well, because you might get peckish as well if you have managed them. But the thing about that is she's renowned for this speed of her eating, and there's absolutely no doubt she could do that. But she could also take two and a half hours over the same meal. So this is not somebody who has no control over themselves. This is somebody who is very deliberately using her pace of eating as a means of controlling others. And when you look at Victoria, she's a, a woman, she's a Victorian, she's queen... But she's still really hampered by being a woman in the Victorian era. So, and especially in later years, once a lot of the constitutional power that she's got is starting to slip away, I think she's using food very deliberately as one of the few means she's got of controlling the people around her. And she's censored for it. People still constantly talk about how fast she eats, how she shouldn't do this, she shouldn't do that. There's a lot of shouldn't do's. And you find her son, Bertie, who behaves in exactly the same way. No one says a dicky bird. Not a problem. Eat yourself to death, mate. It's fine. You're a man. So gender is, uh, is also playing a role there, I think. Uh, he ate himself to death. By the time he became king, he was already grossly overweight and suffering from quite a lot more food-related health issues than she seemed to have done. People often ask me whether or not this... Because, of course, today we're all obsessed, you know. We have one brownie too many and we're going to have type 2 diabetes by the end of the week. She didn't seem to suffer from much. She had gout, which is kind of normal at that point. Really, everyone had gout. And if you didn't have gout, you weren't an aristocrat. And she'd fallen down and possibly fractured her knee at one point, certainly injured it very badly, so she walked with a stick. But that wasn't because she was old. I think there's this horrible idea about Victoria that as soon as Albert dies, she wakes up the next day and she's old. And that's just not true. She was in her mid-40s when he died. She went through, you know, middle age and things like that. She was not old, really, until the last five years when she started to get cataracts. But in terms of her diet affecting her health, she was really flatulent. Um... (laughs) And that was a problem, and she did want to convince herself she was having a heart attack because she had trapped wind, uh, which was brilliant. <laughs> but apart from the flatulence and the gout, she seems to have been remarkably healthy. Um, probably unlike a lot of her servants, because they did seem to specialise in dropping dead on the job. God, I know, I got obsessed with death certificates. Yes, well, I was slightly obsessed with that too, but because describe the life of a cook in the royal household... Um, One of the things I really wanted to do with this book was not to do what a lot of other biographers do, which is to have a long, long list of aristocrats you've never heard of that are all dead, doing stuff you don't care about. So if they had a proper role, I gave them a name. If not, it was fine. I'd just call them a man or a courtier. And I really wanted to give all the women their names as well, because a lot of the time in books they're referred to as so-and-so's wife, which really annoys me. 
And the same with the lower classes. I wanted to give the lower classes a voice. So actually talk about the cooks and not just go, a cook. Uh, so there's a whole chapter which was me with Ancestry.co.uk and the Royal Establishment books trying to work out what happened to these people. And it's amazing. It's a boarding school. And it's still really nepotistic today. So if you want to go to the Royal Kitchens, you basically have to have a relative who works somewhere in the Royal Household who will nominate you and put you forward. You then pay an apprenticeship fee and you join the kitchens. You're probably around 13 or 14 at this point and you're a boy. Um, and you work your way up the ladder there are sort of seven apprentices and then above that there's another seven or eight people and above that there are 45 cooks in total 15 of them are women Uh, and the women join at a low rank and normally they go one stage further and they stop so one of my heroes in the book was a woman uh, who managed to earn um, Jane Elgar she was called she managed to earn £40 for her entire existence in the Royal Kitchens and she she was there for over 40 years Um, and that was it same level same wage she saw off three different people above her who were earning £300 to her £40 Um, because they were men so you'd work your way up and you would tend to specialise in an area so you'd be a confectioner or a baker or you'd be one of the main cooks Uh, and only when you got to be one of the top ten did you work on the royal dishes other than that you're working further down and you're working in incredible conditions has anyone visited the Windsor Kitchens? They're only open on, like, Wednesdays in August or something. Um, But they are gorgeous. Uh, One of the apprentices later in the rain described them as looking like a temple. And they really do. You walk in, they've got clerestory windows, so they're lit from above. Gleaming copper all the way around them. They're pediment. They've got battlements, the kitchens. There's roasting ranges at both ends. And then they've got what are called roasting screens or hasteners, which are these sort of... They look a bit like warming covers. You push them against the fire to reflect the heat of the fire back. They've got battlements. The tables have got battlements. George IV built it, and he was quite obsessed with pomp and glory uh, it didn't change throughout victoria's reign either you had charcoal chafing stoves all the way down both sides and then a big heated steam table in the middle of the room and then there were about 20 or 30 other rooms attached to the kitchen so three rooms for the confectionery uh, two rooms for the pastry a room just for the ovens a room for preparing fish a room for preparing vegetables you name it it goes on and on and on and on so the kitchens are enormous and your working day is you know very very long and very very strenuous and the kicks drop dead from God, it was awful. I had to stop her for a while because it was so depressing just reading about these people who just dropped dead, some of them. And then it was things like apoplexy, fine, that's a stroke, but really at 38, um, you've got people, one of the, uh, Mary Timms, I think it was, dies of albuminuria, which I had to Google, um, and it's kidney disease, which is viciously painful. Another one of the cooks, uh, by the time he died of a brain tumour, had been having fits for three years previously. Well, he'd been in the royal kitchens with two of them. So, what an, you know, it was a really physical environment. And then you add to that the Buckingham Palace kitchens, which were some of the skankiest kitchens on the planet. And actually, life as a royal cook's not great. And you're not, by the, by the standard of the time, you're not paid well either. Uh, Frank Atelli, who was cooked to Queen Victoria for a year before he got sacked after thumping someone in the kitchens, they don't tell you that on the miniseries, um, he was earning £300 a year in the royal kitchens, and he was earning £1,200 a year when he went back to his old job at Crockford's which is one of the gentlemen's clubs so you weren't paid that well but of course you were guaranteed a job for life you were guaranteed a pension and if you were sick you were guaranteed sick pay and there's nowhere else that would do that so you can see why people did stay and the Buckingham Palace kitchens sound like quite a contrast because when Victorian moved in there was sewage leaking through the floor and there was a smell of rubbish coming through the windows and they just sound really terrible. And on top of that, you risked carbon monoxide poisoning yeah. from the charcoal. 
and so which made me very anxious about the uh, charcoal grills at Honey and Smoke. <laughs> oh, but you'll have ventilation. I'm assured you? that they've got brilliant ventilation and no one's going to die. When we felt, I don't know if any of you have been watching Sweet Makers that's been on BBC Two. Um, there's one of the episodes of that was a Tudor kitchen, and we used charcoal chafing stoves for that. And the house we were filming in had carbon monoxide detectors. And I did say take the batteries out. I mean, obviously, what I should have said is. Let's not. But, you know, I work in historic houses. I said, take the batteries out of the carbon monoxide detectors because otherwise they're going to go off. And sure enough, by day two, these things are blaring out because there's carbon monoxide pouring off the stage. And then the bloody confectioners all start getting ill. And, um, and I do admit, you know, all of us were getting a little bit ill, so we had to move them outside. But I thought it's quite a good graphic demonstration of, A, how much we can't take carbon monoxide anymore, and, B, how much you die really quickly if you're, like, working within an enclosed space. It was great in a kind of historically learning they have nine children and kind of had a, more of a private life because, you know, royal, royal life can be very stressful. They built the Swiss cottage at Osborne House for the kids, which, you know, it sounds like a kind of upmarket Wendy house yes. for picnics and a little destination. I think it's bigger than my actual house, but it is definitely <laughs> yes. an upmarket Wendy house. But it did have a scaled down kitchen and everything for the children and they had their own kitchen garden so that they could really... Yeah, no one told me it was scaled down. I thought it was perfect. And then they said, no, it's three quarter size. <laughs> oh, right. No, it's not. <laughs> and so they, you know, they did mean well in terms of t- teaching their children about food. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Victoria was very invested in food. She did know where things come, came from. And before state visits, she would go out to the kitchen gardens at Windsor and she would tour them with the gardener and discuss the state of the cherries and exactly what was going on. So she did genuinely have a knowledge of where her food came from and with the children she'd been to the Chateau of Eau in France in 1842-3 to visit Louis Philippe who at the time was the king of France and he had this private chateau left to him by his mother and she loved it and it's really touching when you read the journals because she talks about going over there and socialising with Louis Philippe and he, he threw impromptu picnics yeah, impromptu involving a huge marquee and tables and tablecloths and she just didn't see half of that anyway she loved it so much she decided to buy Osborne and have this privately owned palace she could do with what she wanted to um, and there especially it was very much a family home so the children would be taken in the winter for example to see the ice house being filled which involved um, chiselling ice out of the rivers and the lakes all the way around the Osborne estate and filling the Osborne ice house um, through a hatch in the roof and she describes it and describes seeing the ice falling down like a waterfall so the children would know where the ice to make their ice cream came from and they all had their own plot their own kitchen garden plot where they sold the vegetables they grew to Albert at market price so they would learn about the value of money um, and they had this scaled down kitchen where they would cook things and the equipment that's there suggests that most of what they did cook was cake so it's kind of classic children's food really and pancakes and things like that but they had a full sc- scaled down range um, which had roasting capability and it had proper hobs and they had these they had charcoal chafing stoves so that they too could suffer respiratory failure uh, and all the moulds they had in the kitchen were sourced from the same places as the royal kitchen so Benham and Froud and Bennington's they, I mean it's, it's perfect if you go to Osborne House this kitchen is just delightful and they probably learnt dairying as well so they learnt where butter came from they had their own bantams they had a gazelle they had a chihuahua they had some ostriches as well they had quite a lot of animals some of which they ate some of which they ate the produce from um, and it, you do get this genuine feeling that it was a lovely, lovely place to be. And although Victoria and Albert had 
especially with Bertie, very unrealistic expectations of how they would turn out. They did try, within the limit of what they could do as royals and as relatively screwed up people themselves, they did try and bring up their children in a sort of quote-unquote normal atmosphere. And the kids loved it, and it's very clear from their letters home that they really did regard Osborne House as somewhere where they had been able to be themselves and where they could run around like naked hooblooms and where they could do what they wanted to. And they really missed it when they all left and got married to various aristocrats across Europe. It really struck me that the kind of cosiness of Osborne compared with the, the kind of grandeur of some of the state banquets and I think that Napoleon III was served roast, roasted bustard. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they were extinct, but she got one from France to eat. And you, you kind of think that the sheer scale of it and the effort that must have been taking place in the kitchens and the fact that you know, you'd have to plan ahead so much that you would be planning ahead with making ice um, so that you could eat all those delicate confectionaries and you would be... Soups took days because of making your own stocks and... And jelly. And Boiled jelly. calves' feet for a few days, the, yeah. The, the, the calves' foot jelly thing was another of those things that you just... You know, you, you kind of don't see what's behind those beautiful sculptured dishes that were appearing on the table and they really did love that those sculptural forms didn't they yeah I mean it's you can cook the dishes from the era quite easily in some ways sometimes the flavors are hard to replicate and sometimes you substitute things so if you're making a Victorian jelly you just use gelatin leaves um, although it's worth doing cast with jelly just once because the texture is really lovely um, but so, yeah. <laughs> um, no honestly um, but the presentation in most ways, would be beyond us now. You know, a, a soup which has got um, small canals which have been poached and which are three different colours floating in them, or a roasted joint of beef which has been larded, so strips of lard have been sewn through the flesh absolutely geometrically correctly. And then when it's served, it's got hatelet skewers which have got boiled coxcombs on and truffles and mushrooms and plover's eggs on. And then it's been garnished round the edge with something as well. And, you know, these dishes do take weeks in some cases to make. Um, there's a autobiography of a, of a royal chef called Gabrielle Shumi. Now he, this is one of the frustrations of writing the book, Gabrielle Shumi has been used as a source for the royal kitchens by everyone forever, since 1956 anyway, when he dictated his memoirs. He's wrong. Um, I used him uncritically as a source when I was doing a research report for Osborne House many years ago because he describes the royal kitchens in 1895 and the chefs and the dishes. But his memory is faulty, and it's quite clear when you start to look at who was actually in the kitchens versus who he describes in the kitchens that he's actually remembering Edward the first, Edward the seventh's reign. It's a minor point in some ways because the atmosphere is still correct, but he's quite a problematic source. Anyway, he talks about Edward the seventh's coronation banquet. Um, in 1901. Now, Edward VII had appendicitis or possibly a fatty liver or something just before his coronation, so it had to be called off um, and then rescheduled for a month later. So the kitchens obviously panicked. And he describes the banquet in a lot of detail because he was everyone was very traumatised by the level of food that they'd made. And some things they could save. So they'd spent a week making champagne jellies, uh, which could be poured back into the champagne bottles and sealed with either a cork or a bit of lard or paraffin or something on top and they were fine they kept 
um, for a month. And they kept some things like the quail for a month as well, so presumably unplucked. But a lot of the food went to waste. And they had spent, and also they'd been cooking the normal meals at the time, as, at the same time as preparing the coronation feast. So all the cooks had been staying for four hours after their usual things, working till two in the morning to prepare this incredible banquet, which had bits coming out of everywhere. It had um, woodcocks that had been, st- well, not woodcocks, um, plovers, something like that. Snipe, big ass, um, that had been stuffed with a truffle-based stuffing and then garnished with this, that and the other. And they took three days to prepare. And nearly all of them ended up being eaten by the poor of Spitalfields because they had to distribute the leftovers somehow. So they gave them away to charity. Um, so it was the unmarried mothers of Spitalfields that ate all of these exquisite dishes on the night of the coronation. But it did, it's a really graphic demonstration of how much work went into things, even just on an everyday level. There's no way you could just prepare something and stick it in front of the Queen. Everything had to be absolutely beautiful. And the quantities of food... It makes you realise that we always concentrate on the upper end, but actually they were feeding 4,000 people a day on some days. So you're looking at mass catering, it's a factory, and you've got thousands of pounds in weight um, of various things going into the kitchens and ridiculous amounts of stuff. You've got, I mean, there's one bit where there's like 60,000 pounds of smelts or something, which type of fish, and then four calves' brains. And you can see that some of them are going to be fed to lots of people and some are going to be probably not even served as they are but mashed up and served into something else or something else or something else and then served to the queen so the scale is staggering it's and that's just because of the scale of the royal household and then you might throw in banquets and other... yeah ball supper for two thousand people that's not a problem yeah well does that sound familiar to you um, that's thrown me now. Sorry, no. I was just, <laughs> just trying to imagine just what two thousand people all eating game pie looks like. I mean, it's Christmas table, Christmas sideboard. So they had this sideboard all their meals. Uh, has a baron of beef on every year. Uh, there's a photograph of it one year with the date picked out on the beef in uh, flowers. It's very cute. And I looked at this and I thought, I can't work out how that's beef. It looks like a dog. It looks like a Scotty dog with a tail and a sort of. I mean, honestly, for years, I was like, what, what is it? And then I realised that it weighs 350 pounds in weight uh, and uh, that it is, in fact, the entire back end of a cow and that the tail was the tail. It's the whole tail of the cow arching round. So it's, you know, it's about that big. Um, and next to it is a game pie that is nearly as large and that contains a goose, five snipe, 50 woodcock. You know, it's just ludicrous. And in the front of that... It's, teeny tiny little woodcock pie which was sent over from the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland every single year uh, and then there's an enormous brawn and there's a boar's head as well and the boar's head looks tiny I've made stuffed boar's head and it's about that big because uh, it looks like a hamster because you take out all the bones and fill it and the cheeks kind of bulb out and it's not a small dish so when you look at this sideboard and you realise that that boar's head looks small compared to the other things it makes you just go wow and there's you know 16 people eating that have you got some weird things in your freezer at home? Uh, yeah, a few few odd things. Uh, the thing is, I do a radio... Well, most you probably know, I do a radio show with Edmark called The Kitchen Cabinet, and they have a habit of springing upon you with three days' notice whatever topic they're going to do. And it's a brilliant show to research and do, from my point of view especially, because I normally do about a day's research before every show, because I have... I'd, unlike... 
everybody else in it who gets asked what's the best way to make an omelette and they know it and they can just answer it uh, I get asked when did the omelette get invented and could you please tell us the exact dates of everybody who's ever made an omelette so I tend to have to go away and do a lot of research for it um, but one of the things I love about it is cooking the stuff from it because it's a real thrill and it's an excuse really to do it but I have this sort of stash of things just in case. So I've got two squirrel in the freezer at the moment, which is relatively normal. Uh, I've got two calves heads in case I get asked to do mock turtle soup, which uses a calves head. I've got a bag of ears, um, sort of sorted ears. They're mainly pigs ears. Mainly pigs, a couple of sheep. Uh, I've got various innards that are sort of lurk. I, to be honest, I try not to get down the bottom too much. Um, pretty certain there's a bag of tails in there somewhere. Uh, and uh, there's a box of crayfish which I only use for decorating because they look really good on skewers um, poked into animals, obviously. Uh, there's something that might be mincemeat, but it might be Christmas pudding, and I don't honestly know which one it is because I didn't label it, and I think it's a Tudor mince pie, which means that it's probably about a third mutton, but I'm not entirely certain. And I'm waiting for some gig where I can put it out and kind of it can pass for something, but cause I don't want to throw it away. And there are two moulded cake, moulded sponge cakes that are Victorian. Oh, and I have a box of taxidermy bird parts as well and a fake pie. I've just found a taxidermist who's going to make me a pigeon on a stick. Uh, but the stick will wave slightly, full pigeon in flight. So I can make a big pie to go underneath it and then the pigeon will sit on its stick on the pie and it will fly. And the book is from 1918. says uh, you should get your taxidermist to make this for you because it will save you having to uh, roast one up every single time. And I thought... How ingenious. But it's taken me six years to find a taxidermist who doesn't just laugh at me when I ask for it. So, uh, bonus. Good boy. Are going to see a picture of that anytime soon? Well, I hope so. He yeah. said it might take a while to do the pigeon. So, you know, we're softly, softly here. I'm not holding my breath. But the bird parts are starting to fall apart because you put them out and the public tend to stroke them. Um, and then you go, it is real. And they go, ugh. Um, Audley End, we used to have a lot that we'd... Uh, roasted. You can put if you if you ever want to present a pie a la Victorian or indeed any era because this is a very very long a pie with a long history. Uh, get yourself a pheasant or a partridge or whatever uh, and chop off the head at the back of the neck but keep a lot of the breast feathers on. Take off the wings at the joints uh, and take off the tail and then stick them all on skewers and spread out the wings on a sort of you know grill or something like that and tie them down so it stays in place put them in the oven to dry them out so they set they don't need to be properly cooked don't burn them uh, and don't let the eyes go milky um and now you've then you've got all your parts on skewers and you can make a pie and you stick them in your pie so your pie is the base and it looks like a bird sort of and that's a really historic way to serve them and it's Everyone's brilliant and it works really well. and obviously no one's going to get salmonella because well in the past it wasn't rife in chicken flocks anyway, but also because you have vaguely cooked them. And you can then keep them in the freezer and you can get them out again whenever you need them. Well, I know what you guys are all going to be doing at the weekend. It's perfect. And it, you know, it takes minutes. It's so worth doing for that extra wow factor. I think probably people are beginning to think about soon. <laughs> what is on the menu? So we have the book for sale and I really recommend the read because it's just a great romp through Victorian... Well, it does feel like a romp, because it's a celebration of a greedy queen, and yes, I'm projecting it when I talk about her food issues, and I don't blame her. And I just think it's fascinating, if you're interested in modern cookery, kitchens, you know, it's really interesting to see what the roots of, of our cooking come from, and how things are developing. So we, we went to uh, Empire, just because we thought maybe... 
there wouldn't be enough mutton chops to go around. So uh, we did a lovely vegetarian curry, said cucumber curry, uh, which is really, really nice. Uh, and a chicken curry with apricots, which were a favorite of the late queen. And we had to do Victoria Sponge. <laughs> we had to. Well, there's that for dessert. I hope you enjoy. And a big hand for... Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That'll be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant with recording assistance from the lovely Hannah Phoebe Bowen. Music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at Honey and Co. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.